Black Sun Rising, Part 5. I don't remember exactly when I was formally introduced to him. I had seen him and Al Bielek in the clubs all the way back in 89. In their polyester ensembles, complete with plaid high waters to show off their Buster Brown shoes, they had stood out looking like undercover cops amongst the bikers, mobsters, and freshly minted Wall Street slicksters that made up the usual crowd. I was running security for a couple of strip clubs right across the street from Babylon Town Hall on Long Island. Preston Nichols was a 350-pound gelatinous blob, and Bielek looked like he was playing Stan Laurel in the old black and white in an old black and white movie. I was working the door that night, and they both stopped right in front of me, something most people avoided when there wasn't a cover charge. They were having an animated conversation about music, speaking with exaggerated self-importance for what I took to be a couple of nerds on a whimsical midnight excursion to the wild side. For some reason, it stuck in my mind. I remember Preston saying, well, I really like you too, like some important deci decision had just been reached. In 1992, the very same strange man would come out with an even stranger book, the story woven by Preston Nichols, a former employee of Grumman, and that's a quote, unquote, the resident and, and resident of East Islip, along with his co-author, Peter Moon, would assume cult status three books later. They smoothly blend the powerful hallucinogenic out of the Brookhaven lab, the aerospace industry, and an old radar station in Montour Point, Long Island, and the invention of the vacuum and transistor tubes. Central to the narrative is a massive bombardment with oscillated microwaves of selected human beings in a specially built chair. The Montauk chair enabled them to channel alternate realities. This was all based on the mathematics of John von Neumann. There was Aleister Crowley, secret underground bases, Nazi occult science, greys, and time travel. Controlling this latter-day Illuminatus tr trilogy is a sinister cabal that is able to operate in alternate realities and to manipulate this one. According to Nichols, there is an underground complex in Montauk that is headquarters for a secret army of mind-controlled super soldiers. Trained by Nazis, they are able to travel through time and space, acting as trans-dimensional assassins and altering history any way the cabal pleases. Amongst Nichols' circles of friends, his story was taken so seriously that John Ford, the president of the Long Island UFO Network, and three of his friends were given lengthy prison sentences after being entrapped in a 1996 plot to poison then Suffolk County Republican Chairman John Powell, Suffolk Legislator Fred Towell, and Brookhaven Conservative Party Chief Anthony Gazzola by exposing them to radium. After Ford was arrested, I would spend a terse couple of days with him in Long Island's Riverhead Correctional Facility. I had known Preston Nichols for about four years by then. Nichols and Moon's narrative uses the Babylon working as the cabal's raison d'achat. Much of what goes on in Montauk revolves around achieving this magnum opus of all occult ceremonies. In their narrative, the Babylon working is designed to bring about the incarnation of the moon goddess. It is the culmination of a mysterious and archaic rite that Alistair Crowley called the Amal Amalantra working. 
Crowley performed the Amalanche working in the spring of 1998 on Esophis Island on the Hudson River in New York. He spent that summer on Long Island's Montauk Point. Crowley's sexual partner, or conduit, the scarlet woman, as Crowley called her, was a woman named Lottie Mida. Crowley dubbed her the camel after the cabalistic meaning of the third Hebrew letter Gamel, which is the path to the crown of God in the Sephiot Zira. Long afterwards, Crowley would make cryptic references to the city of the pyramids and the ethereal guide he had for the Amalantra working that he called Lamb. The one picture Crowley drew of Lamb would define the gray for the next hundred years. The ritual, or some part of it, was attempted again in 1946 by a few of Crowley's more notable disciples. Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard and the flamboyant American rocket scientist Jack Parsons, the man Operation Paperclip's poster boy, Werner von Braun, would call the real father of America's space program. Parsons' scarlet was an actress, Marjorie Cameron. They renamed the ritual the Babylon working. In 1952, Parsons, who in letters addressed Crowley as most beloved father and would recite Crowley's hymn to Pan before each test launch, is said to have perished in a lab explosion. His body was burned beyond recognition. A few hours later, Parsons' beloved mother would commit suicide. They were both buried in closed coffins, fueling conspiratorial speculation that neither was dead. Journalist Michael Hoffman II has said that Parsons was trying to conjure a homunculus when the lab explosion took place. A homunculus is an ethereal being that the master alchemist grows in a jar. It knows many secrets of the universe, which it will impart to the alchemists who creates it. On the dark side of the moon, there's a crater named after Jack Parsons. The cover of Nichols' first book, The Montauk Project, Experiments in Time, features an artist's rendition of a rearing stallion of ominous muscular proportions. Nichols goes on to, to, in the book to say that man's future can only be accessed so far then the time travel will always find themselves in a barren and uninhabited landscape before a statue of a great rearing horse. In 1993, New Mexican artist Luis Jimenez was commissioned to build a 32-foot-high statue of a similar stallion, rearing up in the middle of a still-unfinished Denver International Airport. The airport would open in 1995, but the statue would not be completed until much later. Jimenez was killed in 2006 when a section of the unfinished horse fell from a hoist at his studio in Hondo, New Mexico. His sons would finally finish the horse in 2008. Since then, about 28 million travelers per year are treated to the spectacle of the rearing horse. Its most notable feature is its ability to leave lasting impressions of fear and dread in small children. The statue is also known as the Devil Horse, or Satan's Steed. Because of its strange decorum and history, Denver International Airport has been called a shrine to the New World Order by many legitimate researchers. Some have even tried to make a case that it is the external face of a vast underground construction in the service of a Luciferian light who are the hidden overlords of the West. Only one thing is really certain. The horse in the airport bears an uncanny resemblance to the horse on the cover of Preston Nichols' first book. As Jim Morrison once said, when all else fails, we can whip the horse's eyes and make them sleep.
Even before General Patton and his Third Army had reached the Skoda Works in Pilsen, he had already discovered the existence of National Socialism's subterranean industrial citadels at Ordorf. Colonel Robert S. Allen, who was Patton's intelligence officer, described the miniature Akakor. The central installation was between two and three stories in volume and built with massively reinforced con concrete. Twelve corridors extended from the center for several miles like the spokes of a wheel. The Army Signal Corps estimated the cost of the building, ju building just the telephone exchange that served the Oldorf installation, built in late 44 at $10 million. The underground installations were built for the Germans by the Tat organization, Germany's equivalent to the Army Corps of Engineers. The organization had built the Autobahn, the Siegfried Line, and would later build the Atlantic Wall, ostensibly under Albert Speer. When founder Fritz Tots, the Minister of Armaments and a member of the Inner Sanctum of National Socialists, died in a plane crash after meeting with Hitler about the prosecution of the war in February of 1942. Speer, in spite of the Zionist fairy tale narrative, was never a member of National Socialism's Inner Sanctum. As Tot's successor, as Minister of Armaments, he was in charge of the Tot organization only by title. The operational chief was Franz Xavier Dorsch, a survivor of the original Beer Hall Push and one of the founding members of the National Socialist Party. Dorsch reportedly dire reported directly to Martin Bormann. In April of 44, when Hitler decided to move German industry underground wholesale, he removed Speer and replaced him with Dorsch as head of the Tat organization. Dorsch walked, even though he was in charge of almost one million slave laborers. He would go on to live another 40 years as a titan of the suddenly resurgent German industry. Dorsch Consult was founded in 1951. It became Dorsch Group. In 2006, Dorsch Group is currently Germany's largest independent planning and consulting firm. The commissars were not yet through raping German women when Dorsch was commissioned to write papers for the American military, one of which was published in 1947. In his book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files, Dr. Richard Sonder, who writes extensively on deep underground military bases, states, I have two declassified project paperclip memoranda in my files that specifically request four men with expertise in underground installation, one of, one of whom is Xavier Dorsch. By the time Germany hosted the Summer Olympics in Berlin in 1936, it was the jewel in the crown of Western civilization. National Socialism had brought it there from the dung heap of Europe within a few short years. But the National Socialists had help. German technology was, by some es estimates, a hundred years ahead of the rest of the world. When the Germans wanted to show off, Baron Manfred von Arden had invented television so the Olympics could be broadcast live to Europe. As far as radio waves be beamed into the expanses of the universe, Adolf Hitler was a 38-year head start on the Akribo message. Even before they reached the German border, the amazed Americans had found audio tape when they liberated Luxembourg. 
The October issue of Harper in 46 depicts an American intelligence operative pulling a miniature vacuum tube, half the size of a thumb, and a spool of tape from his desk drawer. He quips breathlessly. That's magnetophone tape. Astounded by German magnetic science, he bubbles. On its plastic metallized on one side with iron oxide, in Germany, that supplanted phonograph recordings. A day's radio program can be magnetized on one reel. You can demagnetize it, wipe it off, put a new program on it at any time. No needle, so absolutely no noise or record wear. An hour-long reel costs 50 cents. Amongst the booty brought back to America, Harper mentions a walnut-sized motor which spun a rotor 10,000 RPMs, so fast that originally it had destroyed all lubricants with the great amount of ozone it produced. There was ultraviolet lights for sterilizing milk, infrared red lights for night vision optics. There was cold extrusion process that enabled a thousand percent increase in the production of small parts made from steel. Magnetic fields aside from being used to record sound were also being used to artificially produce mica. A revolutionary German condenser, now called a capacitator, is described in Harper's as magic, double distilled. All the way back in 1944-34, German inventor Oscar Heil expanded on the work of Dr. Heinrich Barkinson, developed the, uh, the velocity modulated tube. Hal's tube was able to beam electrons in bunches, allowing for the generation of a far higher frequencies than were possible with the vacuum tube. The Heil tube was, first, was the first practical microwave generator. It predated by three years the Kleistron, a specialized vacuum tube used for the same purposes. Wikipedia coyly tells its readers velocity-modulated tubes are very much still in use today in microwave technology. Hal was also issued several patents for transistor-like devices before the war. In 1947, he was invited to America. By the end of 1947, Bell Laboratories announced the invention of the point-contact transistor. The transistor tube would make its debut for Christmas. In 1956, John Barden, William Shockley, and Walter Bratan of Bell Labs would win the Nobel Prize for it. In 1962, Howard found the Howell Scientific Labs in Inc. and lived happily ever after working within the defense industry of the empire. Harper credits the Germans with having 138 types of guided missiles in various stages of production or development and using every known kind of remote control and fuse radio, fuse, radio, radar, wire, continuous wave acoustics, infrared, light beams, and magnetic. There were plans for a rocket-motored bomber, which would be over New York City from Europe in 40 minutes. The V-9 was a 29,000-pound rocket that could hit a target 3,000 miles away, reaching 5,870 miles an hour upon delivery. Harper cites a senior American intelligence officer as saying the outcome of the war would have been doubtful had the invasion of Europe been delayed just six more months. The Soviet foreign minister, Vyacheslav Molotov, would end up publicly accusing America and Britain of helping themselves through plundered German patents and technology to $10 billion in reparations. That's 1940s dollars. 
The Secretary's report from 1946 by the United States Department of Commerce documents the Technical Industrial Intelligence Committee sifting through some three and a half billion papers from every facet of German industry. Of those, they committed three and a half million pages to microfilm. The Library of Congress Quarterly Journal of Current Acquisitions for August 1946 estimated that between 1,000 and 1,500 tons of German air documents had been collected. They go on to say the final screen library, now at Wright Field, is estimated to be 220 tons. America's wanton rape of Germany's private intellectual property not only violated the Hague Convention, but every rule of common decency. Even the British were appalled and vowed publicly to respect Germany's patents. America never did. She launched her golden age of technology with great fanfare, bringing Werner von Braun over to act as both master of ceremonies and court jester. Stretching from Oldorf to beyond Germany's eastern borders lay the Hypogeum Empire of the SS, presided over by ruthless and efficient prince, General Hans Kamla. The Kazaz Castle, on what is now Poland's western border with the Czech Republic, is nestled in a forbidding grove of trees outside the ancient village of Forstenstein. The Nazi bell was located there before it was moved to Waldenburg, and now Walberzik, now called Walberzik. 45 kilometers to the south, it would last be seen beneath the village of Ludwigsdorf in the lambriath of mining tunnels that run like veins through the northern flank of the Sudanese mountains. The Nazi bell had become the 21st century's answer to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like bogus Boris Carlos, some writers have made a cottage, cottage industry out of it. But like Frankenstein, always going back to Mary Shelley, all the Nazi bell stories go back to Igor Watowski, a Polish writer who has done extensive historical work on World War II. Wachowski claims to have been privy to court dispositions and transcripts taken by the NKVD during the interrogation of Jacob Sparenberg, the SS Gruppenführer and, and General Lieutenant of the Polizmi for Poland and Belarus. The Polish courts would subsequently hang Sporenberg at the end of 1952 after having found him guilty of war crimes in 1950. According to Sporenberg, the Glock, as it was called in German, was a bell-shaped casing made out of hard and heavy metal. It was filled with a mercury-like substance, codenamed Zerum-525. The metallic liquid was violet-colored and had to be stored in three-centimeter-thick lead-encased receptacle. The experiments always took place under a ceramic cover and involved two cylinders rotated with, rotating with great centrifugal force in opposite directions. During the experiments, which were about a minute in duration, the bell would glow pale blue in color. The chamber the experiments took place in was deep on the ground and had a 30 square meter floor area. The whole chamber was encased in ceramic bricks, overlaid with rubber mats. It was thoroughly flushed with a brine-like liquid after every experiment. The mats were replaced after every few experiments, and after every 10, the whole chamber was replaced, with only the bell remaining. During the testing, 
personnel were kept 150 to 200 meters away. <coughs> Electrical equipment within the circumference would invariably short circuit. The first experiments were performed in late 1944. During those tests, animals and plants were placed within the Bell sphere of, of influence. The test subjects all died. A crystalline substance would form within the tissue and body fluids, gelled, sep gelled, separating into fractions and killing the organism. The subjects all exhibited an, an accelerated rate of decomposition, but were absent of any odors of putrefaction. Within eight, 8 to 14 hours after the experiments, the plants would all have the consistency of axle grease. Five of the original seven scientists working on the bell died. In the second experiment, in early 1945, the mortality rate was reduced to 10 to 15 percent. Humans would experience disturbances of sleep, unsteadiness on their feet, and loss of memory. They were also plagued with, permanent, with a permanent metallic taste in their mouth. If one goes, follows the old railroad tracks out of Ludwigsdorf and up into the Southern Teens foothills, they intersect the now abandoned Wascalis mine hidden in, the in a valley. At the far end of the valley, next to the now crumbling facility that was once capable of burning a thousand tons of coal a day, 30 meter wide concrete ring is suspended 10 meters high by 10 concrete pillars. Heavy duty hooks are built into to the tops of each uh, each of them on the ground. There is a, a junction for electric cables that were once powered by the coal-burning facility. Instead of the, the ring, the ground has been excavated to about a meter and lined with ceramic bricks. During the war, the Wascalis-Salsus mines underground concrete bunkers had been carefully concealed beneath its buildings and fresh, freshly planted trees. The concrete ring had been painted green to camouflage it from planes. No one ever goes there anymore, even by foot. The mine shaft itself has been flooded. Nick Cook, in the hunt for zero point, claims the finest, in the finest British tradition that the SS shot all 62 scientists involved with the project. Regardless, the Germans considered the belt to be Kriegsland. War decisive, their highest security classification. General Hans Kammler, who had been the commanding officer overseeing the bell, had melted away right in the face of the Soviet advance. Kammler officially denied his Reichsfuhrer Heinrich Himmler's written request for a truck, an SS code word for a Junkus 390. The six-engine monster cargo plane, capable of flying to New York and back without refueling, then Kamler had vanished into history, along with the Bell and one of Germany's only two prototype 390s. Some stories say he was shot dead in Czechoslovakia. Others that he took the Bell to Argentina and still others to the United States. Nobody, Bell or nobody, Bell nor plane has ever been found. Wachowski says Sorenberg fingered Walter Gierlach as the scientist in charge of the Bell experiments. Since the beginning of 44, Gillick had been the plenipotentiary for nuclear physics at the Reich Research Council. After the war, he had been targeted by Alsos for intermittent and eavesdropping at Farm Hall. It could easily be deduced that the Nazi bell was some kind of experimental particle accelerator being used for the enrichment of uranium. 
But Walter Gierock had written his, his doctorate while in the apprentices of Frederick Passion, acknowledged by his peers as the greatest experimental, spe experimental spectroscopist of his time. Passion is the discoverer of the Passion series, a series of hydrogen spectral lines in the infrared region that he first observed in 1908, the same year the 20-year-old Gearlock had begun his doctoral studies under him. During World War I, Gearlock had worked on wireless communication for the German army under the guidance of the brilliant Max Wien, who was written out of history by the Zionists for his blatant anti-Semitism, but is the inventor of the Weinbridge Oscillator. Weiner collaborated with Passion by correspondence as early as the summer of 1895. By 1921, Gearlock was recruited by the German-Jewish scientist Otto Stern, who, just like his mentor Albert Einstein, lacked even the most rudimentary skills in experimental physics. Gearlock would prove in the lab what Stern had suspected. Magnetic fields restrict the spatial orientation of atomic and subatomic particles. Their discovery would be christened the Stern-Gearlock experiment and would open the doorway for German scientists, uninfected by the full science of Einstein, to harness the limitless energy of the ether. Without Riemann geometry, there would have been no theory of relativity. A half century before Einstein stole his first patent, German mathematician Bernard Riemann had invented non-Euclidean geometry that enabled the descriptions of higher dimensions, making possible the theory of relativity. In 1932, John von Neumann would write the mathematical Bible for quantum physics. Mathesius Grundlagen der Quantenmechanik. By then, von Neumann had long since dubbed the infinite universe that he and his colleagues were trying to describe as Hilbert Space after his teacher at the University of Göttingen, David Hilbert. The Germans took it for granted that gravitational waves existed, not only in this universe, but extended to, to the, into the uncharted regions of the multiverse. They realized that to tap into them, they, they, they would be to tap into the primal force of the cosmos and appropriate for themselves the power of their enemy's god. Farrell describes it as an odd-looking L-shaped weapon above above the strong ray cannon from schematics reproduced by yet another Nazi secret weapon researcher, Henry Stevens, as it is shown in Joseph Farrell's Reich of the Black Sun. Farrell describes it as an odd-looking L-shaped weapon comprised some, some sort of crystal, then a series of hollow tubes each focusing whatever beam is ge was generated to a narrower and narrower point until it emerged from a small hole with allegedly deadly effectiveness through limited range. The hollow tubes from outside to inside are in incre incrementally longer lengths, indicating the focusing of some kind of longitudinal wave. The crystal could very well be a quartz crystal oscillator designed by L.A. Meekham and introduced in 1938. It was an improvement on the wine bridge oscillator. In the 1940s, it would also it would have allowed the state for the state-of-the-art precision adjustment of wave frequencies. In 1997, Wilder A. Rodriguez Jr. and G.N.U. Lee Lu wrote a paper about what they called undistorted progressive waves. These are families of waves 
traveling at arbitrary speeds. They're distortion-free and don't spread out over a distance. Even if interfered with, they return to their original form after a certain period of time. The paper introduced experimental data showing how a superliminal, faster than the speed of light, electromagnetic X-wave can be launched by forcing one of these waves to a tiny hole that they call a finite aperture approximation. They go on to make the mathematical argument that the theory of relativity has been compromised by the data resulting from their experiments. In 1922, Gierlach had already proved the power of the atom could be harnessed through magnetism. He had worked on the cutting edge of infrared spectroscopy and wireless communication with the most brilliant men in that field. Because of insufficient data, Gierlach's own field of expertise can only be described generically as electromagnetism. Regardless, by World War II, he may very well have been the most important physicist alive. Hitler thought so. As plenipotentiary of the Reich Research Council, Gierlach had the power to take any course of action he saw fit in Germany's version of the Manhattan Project. In spite of that, the tradition of, in the tradition of Wolfgang Cordon, there is little avail, available in Wikipedia on Walter Gierlach. When he was returned to Germany in 46, Gierlach would go on to a career as a distinguished professor and first president of the Fraunhofer Society. He would never again practice experimental physics, at least openly. The gods of war would have their days in the 40s, and many hopes and dreams would be trampled under, the, under their chariots. Perhaps no part of the carnage told a sadder tale for the human race than the story of Victor Schauberger. Schauberger was an Austrian forestry engineer, a man of prodigious genius who dreamed only of building a better world for all mankind. He was self-taught in the likeness of von Arden, and just like him, he did his talking in the lab and had little use for the pedantic sciences of universities. His teacher was the babbling books and swirling rivers of the ancient Teutonic forests. It was why observing a trout holding its position without any swimming effort at all against the rushing current of a stream that Schauberger decided the trout was utilizing something other than kinetic energy. Schauberger reasoned that the animal was extracting the energy from the molecules of its own body by condensing them with extreme temperature gradients. He came to the conclusion that this condensing process took place in the motion of a vortex swirling into its own center. From his observations of naturally occurring tornadoes, whirlpools, and vortexes of galaxies, Schauberger reasoned that this is how energy was released in nature. If he could force matter into the spiraling motion, what he called implosion, by rapidly condensing and spinning it until the particles of the atoms became unglued, he could tap into the power of the stars without ever having to split an atom. In Schauberger's mind, industrialization with its dams and pollutants had interfered with the natural vortex patterns of water. These patterns are necessary for life to flourish. Water, once the lifeblood of the planet, had now become a pollutant, sapping the planet's vitality. With his writing, Schauberger advocated the development of biotechnical machinery. He soon came to the attention of Adolf Hitler. In 1934, Schauberger was summoned to a meeting with Hitler and Max Planck the founding father of quantum physics. Schauberger warned Hitler that under the current conditions, his thousand-year Reich would not last past ten. 
We propose to them a brand new world with unlimited free energy based on a science in harmony with nature. Hitler was a mystic. As a mystic must have been enthralled with Schauberger's ideas. The meeting went on long over the time that was allotted for it. After about two hours, Planck scoffed at him and told him nature and science have nothing to do with each other. A few years later, nobody would be scoffing at, scoffing at Victor Schauberger. The idea of negating gravity with vortexes had been floating around Germany at least since the 20s. In 1933, Christoph Hilgenberg wrote his best-known book, The Expanding Earth, and proposing the continental drift was the result of, of the Earth expanding in volume. Before that had been published, the solution to the mystery of gravitational gravita, gravitation, gravitation in 1929 and on gravitation vortices, waves, and moving bodies in 1931. Hilgenberg was one of the most influential of the German scientists. He single-handedly rescued the Technical University of Berlin by recovering the university's cutting-edge science library from the Soviet Union after the war by more, more or less just asking his Russian scientific colleagues for it. In 1940, Schauberger applied for a patent on an energy generator that could be used for either aircraft or submarines. Schauberger described the device as the multi-stage centrifuge with concentrically juxtaposed pressure chambers. The self-contained centrifugal system only relied on a small starter motor, which above is listed by Harper as an American war booty, to bring to his turbine, to bring its turbine up to around 20,000 revolutions per minute. But once there, it supplied its own energy, and when hooked into a gear shaft, could act as a generator. Shortly after that, Schauberger would write to his cousin, saying he had invented a new aircraft. It didn't make any noise. At the beginning of 1941, he was, at his own expense, still looking for a contractor to build a scale model prototype of what he called the Repulsator. He planned on using it to investigate free energy production and prove his theory of levitational flight. In the ensuing months, Schauberger would put away his wallet, and the SS would give him carte blanche in the Third Reich, swearing him to work for them in total secrecy and tipping him off that the industrial giant Hinkle had been stealing his patents. Schauberger was uncharacteristically secretive about what he was doing for the SS for the next couple of years, but it is known that he was working around the Seventeen Mountains. During one experiment, the repulsator had actually shot up with such force that it smashed against the hangar ceiling, severely damaging itself. In June of 44, Schauberger was summoned to Breslau, ostensibly to be drafted into the SS. But a month earlier, he had been ordered to Mathusen concentration camp to select his own team of technicians from among the inmates to build as many as five different types of machines. It is stated in his archives that the SS wanted him to stop tinkering around with prototypes and begin serious construction work. In his diary, Schauberger says the machines were a water purifier, an energy device capable of generating high-voltage electricity, a machine for biosynthesizing hydrogen fuel from water, and another that naturally produced intense heat or cold. The fifth was that Flagenschreib, or Flying Saucer. The Flagenschreib was scheduled for its first flight on May 6, 1945. 
Schauberger's team stopped work on May 8th. The German armed forces officially stopped fighting that night. A few hours later, Schauberger would be apprehended by American intelligence forces at Leonstein. Almost simultaneously across the country in Vienna, the Russians would enter his apartment, confiscate whatever they could find, and blow the building up, just in case they had missed anything. The Americans would intensively debrief Schauberger for the next nine months, releasing him in March of 46 under the oath that he would never work on what he called atomic technology again. By 1958, Schauberger was 72 years old and suffering from a bad heart and emphysema. Carl Gersheimer, a transplanted German acting as an agent for an American financer, Robert Dorner, flew his, to his home in Austria and promised him glory and riches in the United States. Gersheimer had prior links to the intelligence community in Nassau. Donner was tied to America's version of Frankenstein's castle, the Na National Atomic Research Laboratories at Brookhaven Lab on Long Island. Schauberger, still dreaming of giving the human race's free energy technology, took the bait. Upon his arrival with, in America, he met with implosion experts from the Brookhaven Lab, supposedly to assess the feasibility of his ideas. After dickering with the dying man for months, Donner finally got him to sign a document that hadn't been translated into German, turning over to Donner Gersheimer Consortium everything Schauberger ever did with his implosion technology. They swarmed to frequency and put him on a plane back to Austria. Schauberger died five days after he got home. In the 90s, Russian scientist Eugene Pakhlanov caused a furor amongst the aerospace industry and their academic drone when he announced that in gravity modification experiments, he had been able to achieve as much as 5% reduction in a targeted object's weight. He was using rotating magnets to spin superconducting donut-shaped discs, specially made for him by Toshiba, at speeds exceeding 20,000 revolutions per minute. Fully anticipating his hostile audience, Podlikov Paklanov tried to pad his industry jeopardizing experimental results with an explanation for his research into, his into this forbidden field. He told him in self a self-effacing story about how he had first noticed the tor 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 torsion effects on, a gravi on gravity when the a lab colleague's pipe smoke was funneled in a column over an unrelated experiment he was doing. In an interview over 10 years ago, Nick Cook admitted that he had speed, that, that at speeds of between 25 and 50,000 revolutions per minute, he had achieved full levitational effect. At the time of the inter interview, Podklinov was being financed by Toshiba. He also admitted to Cook that he comes from a long line of prominent Russian scientists. His father was a respected scientist that had been re a recipient of what he called what the Red Army had found when they searched Victor Schauberger's Vienna apartment in the aftermath of World War II. Paklanov then had been studying his father's Schauberger papers all his life. They were the foundation of his work. In 